Anyway, into chapter 18. Mitch, thank you for reading. Um, I want to look at where we're at because really, as we said before, 13 almost through 20 kind of is just like a giant chunk of the story. Uh, it's all, all about this, this problem that eludes because of David's original sin and then him not dealing with it, him not dealing with his children the right way and, and because he continued not to deal with things. So we're, we're to the wise when you got an issue, deal with it. Because if not, this is what happens. The snowball effect. It gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And here we are with his own son who's kicked him out of, out of the city, who's kicked him out of the kingdom. They're off hiding. Uh, last week we discussed how he had sent a spy in there to give, give some extra advice to, to help them out. Uh, luckily because of Absalom's pride, um, he takes that advice rather than taking the advice of, of actual wise counsel. And because of that, it's now given them time. We remember the end of chapter 17. David's got his men. They're, they're, they're in the wilderness. They're, they're across the Jordan. They're away from the city. They've got time to get together. The, the end of chapter 17 discussed. They've got time to gather all this, this feed, this sheep, this, these men, uh, which, which as Mitch just read, hundreds and thousands of men. So, so stuff is happening during this time. This wasn't just a, a spies deploy to, to stop a war. This was a spies deploy to give a little bit of time to David and his men to get their stuff together. You know, sometimes we just need to, to have some time to get some stuff together. Uh, Jesus himself took some time to get some stuff together. And uh, thankfully for that, uh, he was able to complete the mission and complete the battle. And that's, that's where David's kind of at. David's got his men the end of, of 17. They're eating. Uh, it even ended reminding us the, the people must be hungry, exhausted, and thirsty in the wilderness. And I can't imagine as they had left, you know, they had to grab stuff quick and go. Uh, the lack of preparation, all the worry, the concern, which makes you even more uh, maybe anxious uh, when, when all that other stuff comes about. And then when you get hungry, thirsty, and exhausted. I mean, when, you, when you're hit on every level, you know, what you're truly feeling. But chapter 18 starts, you know, with some, with some good stuff. The group, they've, they've rested, they've fed, they've grew. Uh, we know by, by some of the words used. And then at the very beginning, we get what David begins to do. You know, David said, enough is enough. You can wait for a period of time. You can get your stuff together, your resources together, your plan together, have some time in prayer. But eventually enough has got to be enough. And in chapter 18, David has come to that point where enough is enough. He's got his men's together. His men's. How about that? Right. Only in the South. He's got, he's got his men together and, 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 he, and he's smart. We know David is a, is a master military leader. So, so he says, you know, what? I'm going to divide you guys up under three captains. So, so really this would have been, in my opinion, if I was a, a producer or something in Hollywood, chapter 18 would be like a movie. Uh, cause it has got some, some bad scenes, but some good scenes. Um, you know, in the whole thing. And you just picture, when you picture this thing, I think it stays in our head a, a whole lot better what's actually taking place. So very beginning, David's in there. He's got his, his large group of people together and he calls out his three leaders. You know, like we're about to play a kickball game and, and you got your team captains and, and he divides them up and says, all right, you go with this man. You guys are going with this man and you guys are going with this man. And, and I just want us to point out that good leadership has the ability to delegate. He wasn't foolish into thinking, oh, I got to do it all on my own. He wasn't foolish into thinking, I've got to do it all. David knew just what to do in organizing his army and set him up into three divisions under these three different leaders. And good leaders delegate authority. And because he does that, I think that's what helps him get along in this story and begin. Really, chapter 18 is it, it ends very sad because of what 19 tells us. But uh, it's still a beginning of a turnaround. Sometimes you got to get in a sad moment to get your beginning of a turnaround, unfortunately. So verse 2, it says this. He's got him divided up. He says, surely I'm going to go with you. Now, when I first read that, my very first thing that came to mind, first thing I jotted down, 
David learn from his mistakes. Am I right? Think about what, what started this snowball. Go all the way back to what is it? Chapter 11. David's chilling on top of the palace while his men are what? Off the war. What started this whole snowball effect was David was not doing what David was supposed to do. And, and I was just grateful to get to write that down from my very first, my very first, I was like, yes, David has finally learned from his previous mistakes. You know, we talk all the time about mistakes, but the question is, do we learn from our mistakes? Have we changed because of our mistakes? Have we grown because of our mistakes? It takes a big person to be able to say, you know what, what I used to believe in practice was wrong. But it takes a bigger person to then say, that means I got to start believing and practicing something different. You know, if you knew something was wrong, that means there's got to be a change. No change, then it wasn't real. Right? And that's, that's where David's at. David says, man, I know I belong to be in the battle. I don't want to, uh, you know, repeat the previous mistake I made. David's motive is so right in this moment right here. And even his men, when you get to verse three, he's like, well, hold on, David doesn't go. I know. I heard Mitch read too. Right. So, so you get to verse three and it's like, yeah, but his men said, David, you shall not go out. The people surrounding David would not allow him to go out into the battle with the rest of the army. His men had good motives, too. Do we understand it's OK to be in groups where people differ of opinion and everybody be OK and have good motives? Not that everybody can be right, because if you got different things, everybody can't be right. But you can have good motives. It'd be different. All right. Sometimes I think we don't we don't we don't know that. We don't acknowledge that. We're like, oh, no, if they got a different opinion than mine. And then they're wrong and they're going to hell and I'm going to heaven. And no. Why, why do we jump to heaven and hell so fast? Like what, what? What What was that? Right. Let's just all be in the kingdom. And, you know, it's OK. It's all right. We're growing different. All right. But here's why they said that. Now, think about this. Three, three obvious lessons. Two of them they mentioned. One, I believe, is a strong motive that they understood. First thing they say, your life, David, is more valuable than ours. If you go out to the battle, if they see you leading the way like you normally would have back in the day when you were a mighty warrior, like you want to do right now, they're only going to come after you, David. It doesn't matter how many men they have to sacrifice, how many how many weapons and ammunition or whatever they got to use. They're only going to come after you because if they can kill you, then the battle's over and it doesn't matter. Because rightfully so, <laughs> the dude who we're fighting against is your son, who would be the rightful king anyway, if something, God forbid, happens to you. They even said it this way. You are worth more than 10,000 of us. Now, think about that, that kind of loyalty, right? Next thing they say that proves a point. David, you can bring reserves if it's needed. What does he say? You are now more help to us in the city. I mean, man, if things ain't going the way we want them to go into battle, you can come up with a battle plan to, to reevaluate and decide what to do. You can send more men to us. You can then come later uh, if need be. Or, or if they're coming from a different attack, you're here. But, but anyway, you're where you need to be. And then I think the third one that's not mentioned, which I'm going to tell you right now, you need to find you some good friends who will, who will be able to guide you, support you, and, and understand realistic uh, expectations, right? Because I had this. They understood that it would be hard for David to fight against his own son. I mean, let's just be honest. I don't care how awesome David is, and I don't care how spiritual you think you are, and how mighty you think you are, and how holy you think you are. When it come down to it, if David would have approached his son on the battlefield, and I believe this 100% accurate by what he tells his men, he wouldn't have had the guts to do what needed to be done. Right? And don't you dare think for any moment that his son would have had soft feelings because we've already seen how this guy acts. He would have immediately eliminated and taken David out. 
So as his men look at this, they're not only worried about he's more valuable. They're not only understanding that he can bring reserves. They're saying, David, there's no way. There's no way you'd be able to do this, man. The, the, the task in front of you is greater than you are. And church, understand me. We need to surround ourselves with some good friends that, that were willing to protect us and also willing to, to set us up for success. I mean, that's what his men are doing. Right? Dave, we, we don't want to set you up for failure. Like if we send you out there and this goes wrong, like your kingdom is done. Israel is done. You know, and, and even a, a great portion of it is already going to be done because of this. But it would have really been even worse. So I, I just love that, man. I love that they've got good motives at this moment right here. They're worried about David just like they should be. And I, and I love verse four. Verse four, David. This is also the sign of a great leader. Whatever seems best to you, I will do. David is not this stubborn leader. David knew how to submit to good advice. Now, I'm not talking about David's like giving up his leadership. I'm saying that David is practicing good leadership by listening to the wise counsel of people around him. Do we understand the difference? Sometimes, even if you're the leader, the boss, the more knowledgeable one, you're going to have to come to a point where you're willing to listen to the good advice and the counsel of those around or under you. It's not a sign of of your leadership title being taken away. It's a sign of, of being wise. Don't you dare think for a moment God has put me the head over my family, but don't you dare think for a moment that my wife and even my kids have gotten moments where they could get daddy with some wise counsel. And thankfully, most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, I'm able to heed to that and understand that and open my eyes to see that. You know, no different than us in the upper room. There's not really a set. Sure, I got the title pastor and Mitch has got a title of Sunday school teacher and, and all that. But man, we're in the upper room. Every man is given advice for every man. And you ladies, I hope the same thing happens down here. We're growing together to better one another for the kingdom of God. And we're not stubborn enough to think, oh, no, my way is more right than their way. And, and scoot our little high horse up and think we're more mightier than somebody else. No. How about let's just agree that, that God's way is the way. That kind of settles the argument then, right? One thing I'll say today, we may all have different uh, opinions about death and life after death and religion and all that stuff. But the truth of the matter is this. There's only one truth. Right? Whether you believe it or not, there can only be one truth. Now, either, either well, I hope we're all on the same page, but either others that will be gathered today at this funeral will, will, will be right or, or I will be right along with some others at the funeral as well. We'll be the only one. You know, so we got we got to keep that in mind. There, whatever it is, truth is truth. All right. David says this. David says, man, I will heed to your wise advice. I will do whatever uh, seems best to you. And then in verse four, it says this. So the king stood beside the gate. I picture him like this coach at this moment. Right. You know, he's right there at the, at the locker room door before they're getting ready to come out. And I love this first time we get to see that the numbers have grown. It says that he stood at the gate and the people went out into verse four hundreds and by thousands. You know, it's almost it's almost like now they're divided. Up. They've, they've got this. This force of reckoning that's getting ready to happen. And you can, you can feel the anticipation. This was that Hollywood movie that I wanted to make. Man, you, you, you would, you would know that something awesome is about to take place, right? The, the music would change and, and the scene would change and, and it would begin to fade out. And you would just see these men ready for war running out and their king standing there cheering them on. You guys can do it. You guys can do it. And as I picture this though, because remember everything that we read, old, new, Timothy says all of it, right? It, it is for us also. So, so it's not just this cool scene. What I see is a lot of guys who are willing to sacrifice and endanger themselves for the benefit of the king 
And as I think back to what we've said throughout this whole series, why David is not Jesus, he is symbolic of Jesus in a lot of ways through this whole series. And we need to understand this is might be a great example of how believers should be devoted to our King Jesus. Ready to charge, ready to leave out the locker room and, and do whatever needs to be done. And then, of course, we have to get to verse five, right? You're like, man, the, the mood, the mood, the mood is set. The mode and the mood is set. You get to verse five and, and we get this different. Look at verse five. So now the king had commanded. Now the king had commanded. It lists this, making sure we know that, that this was, this was an actual order given. And you don't have to like orders given by those higher of you than authority. But the reality is this. God said, I set up an order of authority. And because I've set that up, you're to follow that order of authority. Because think about the symbolism. You know, we talk all the time about, well, why did God set it where the man has authority? Or why did God set it where, where, where this person has authority? That person? Here, here, here's the simple reason why. Because if you can't obey levels of authority here, how are you going to obey levels of authority to, to, the, to the father? That's what the, the, the setup in the illustration for all, or at least many of the authority things is. But it says, now David, come in. David wants literally know that nothing's to happen to Absalom. He's to be captured alive. He's not to be mistreated. Now, when I first read this, I was even hoping like, you know, the way he words, he says, deal swiftly. I was like, all right, he just means kill him quick. Uh, you don't, don't torture him, take him out any quick. But then by, by the argument that, uh, that Joab has one of the soldiers, we know that wasn't, we don't get the Hollywood, Hollywood setup, right? We get the realistic. He's a daddy, man. He still loves his son. And, and while that may seem weird to us as we're looking at this story, we're like, man, this guy is causing you so much grief. We've got to also understand he's a dad. And I'm grateful that when we talk about Abba, <laughs> he's not quick. To eliminate me, he's slow to anger. He's slow to wrath. He teaches me. He pops me before he kills me. You know, you know what I'm saying? So, so thank God for that. And it even includes this. Verse 5 also says, and all the people heard. This just make sure everybody knew. This wasn't like a secret meeting. That This was something publicly known for all of them. Get to verses 6 through 8. It says, so the people went out into the field of battle against Israel. Those loyal to David. I got, I got to point this out because it sounds weird. I had to look twice and, and read it a couple of times. Those loyal to David fought against Israel. Man, that sounds weird for, for God's army and God's men to be fighting against Israel. But here's what we got to remember. Israel has now been seduced by Absalom's charisma and power. Despite the fact that God wants them to be his people, they have rejected his way and have been seduced by the enemy. Doesn't that sound familiar, huh? Right? So while it may sound weird, we also need to understand this is a realistic thing that can happen. And then it flows in in verse 7. It says this. And the people of Israel were overthrown there before the servants of David. It talks about 20,000 men being taken out. This is a big, big battle, man. And here you have to picture this because of what's said. you you got to have this, right? Not only is this a bloodbath, but picture the environment of this bloodbath. This is where the leadership experience of David and men take over. They're not, y'all ever watch old movies? And I know they're portrayed Accurately, where everybody stands in a line, pow, and a line falls down, and then the next line stands up, and it's almost like if you've got more men, you win, and that's really the only only four. I'm so grateful we don't fight that way anymore. You know, am I right? Like that, that I don't know who came up with that idea, but I'm like, that was the dumbest way of fighting. You could have, like me, I'm hiding in a tree and I'm sniping your butt. You know what I'm saying? You won't even know where the bullet come from before I get you. Oh, um, you know, and, and if I run out of bullets, I'm going to be like army crawling on the ground. I'm going to sneak up with my knife and, and you know, I, I can get into it. I'm a Hollywood kind of guy. Right. So I, I'm, I'm going to make it good. I'm going to make it good. This is David and his men, though, guys. 
They're not dumb enough to fight these guys in the field. What does it say? They lined up to do battle in the field, and then you can almost picture it. It doesn't say it. But I think David's men took like a couple steps back. Get in the wood cover, guys. Get in the wood cover. Because in the cover, their numbers don't mean jack squat. Because when they come running up in here, they're not going to be able to run through trees. They're not going to be able to run through the swamp. They're not going to be able to get through all the briars and the thicket. And they're not going to be able to get past the rattlesnakes and the copperheads. You know what I'm saying? And the scorpions and, and the wild boar and the tigers and the lions and the bears. I can make it good, right? It's a Hollywood movie, right? So, so I mean, you picture all this that's going on. You've got to picture this. Because here's what it says, and here's where their experience and their courage mattered most. They were able to use their environment against the numbers. I mean, if not, guys, it would have been a crazy battle. I mean, no matter how many David has, has looped up, yeah, hundreds and thousands, sure. But Absalom's got the whole, notice it says the whole nation of Israel. This is no longer just Absalom's men. This is the nation of Israel. I mean, this is a big army coming against him, right? And then it says this, verse 8. Oh, man, the best part, right? Because you can picture, like, like now we're about to have a sci-fi movie coming in with this, this real-life war movie. It says, in the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Now, I, I have to tell you, I don't know exactly what that means, okay? Everybody understand that? Everything I'm going to say for the next 30 seconds is ad-libbed, right? It's not written in scripture. It's not 100% guaranteed, but it's a really cool picture of what might have happened, all right? And it, it's not unscriptural either. Someone's like, well, you're, no, I'm not preaching against scripture. I'm just telling you, we don't know what happened. All it tells us is that the woods devoured more people that day than the sword. So here's what you can picture. Now, we've already, Mitch has already read it, so we know. Absalom got stuck up in a tree. What's to say some other men didn't get stuck in trees, right? What's to say they didn't get stuck in briar patches for real? What's to say that the large oak tree and the and the cypress knees that were all around? Because I'm picturing like the Patriot now. I watched it because it was Independence Day, right? So so you got the Patriot, you got the cypress knees, the stones right there, and, and they're tripping over them. And as soon as they fall, it's like you're gone. You fell to the ground. You know, I guess they didn't have a, a nine millimeter, so they stabbed him. Stabbed him with a spear, boom, you're gone. You know, uh, next guy stuck in the briar, so you walk by sticking with your sword. You got all this stuff going on. Now, some of your translations say swallowed up by the woods, which isn't necessarily a bad translation either. But he, here's now some things you get to picture. Maybe they fell into pits. Maybe there's quicksand. Maybe there's a swamp with that pluff mud they're not able to get out of. Maybe there really was lions, tigers, and bears. Maybe there really was poisonous snakes and scorpions and spiders and who knows what else. But here's what we know. These guys got so caught up in the woods that they were able to be defeated by David and his men. Is that not a cool scene or what, right? And, and what I love even more is this, even more of this. So, so whatever's going on, this right here proves to me that God was fighting this battle. So now we're back to what is scriptural and 100% right, okay? Not to say the rest wasn't, because it'd be cool if it was, but this part definitely is. What that verse is saying is that the woods devoured more than the swords. It's saying that God took care of more of their enemy than they could take care of themselves, right? And is it not good when we follow God's way? Take that time away, rest, regroup, feed, re, uh, re- reevaluate, get the numbers back up, right? Then go into battle God's way, using some sense, not standing in a line and shooting at each other, right? And then God will take care of the results, right? We, we, we've seen this throughout the, this whole thing with David. God takes care of the results. It's one reason why you and I can submit to authority unless it completely goes against God. Because God takes care of even those in authority, right? He took care of Saul, didn't he? God will take care of authority. So 9 through 17 is where we're at. You picture this part of it. So you, you got to picture everything, right? This is where I told you I would like to have the movie, but some of you probably think this is like a horrible scene to have pictured. But I like it just because I'm a guy, right? Verse 9, Aslan rides on on this mule. Well, a mule wouldn't normally be rode on, guys. This mule is like supersized horse. 
right? This is not like your normal animal that, 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 that you would see, right? This is Absalom in his vanity once again. It's his pride. It's his arrogance getting in the way. And we've talked about it for three chapters and describing for three chapters. Vanity is what put him into this battle. Remember, he had good advice from his man. But but then David's secret spy went in there and said, yeah, but but David, you need to get the credit. And if you go, we'll win. And if you go, the people will like it more. And if you go, it'll seem like a better thing. And, and it'll be all about you, Absalom. So his vanities put him in this thing. His vanities was encouraged him to buy. Or, no, well, I don't know if he bought. He probably stole it knowing him, crookedness. Right. But got this mule. Got this mule and is riding this thing, which is bigger than, than a normal horse, right? And setting him up for what's about to become his destruction. You can write this down and remember this. Arrogance destroys opportunity for success. In all honesty, guys, if we step back and look, not from a, not from a religious point of view or anything else, if we, just, if we just looked at this thing as a battle scene, Absalom and his men could have won this thing easy. Right? The, the, numbers, the numbers make sense for them to win. Nothing else. They could have just been smart enough to stay in the city and want these guys to come out of the woods if it wasn't for pride, wanting to go after people, right? So, but his arrogance, his arrogance destroys an opportunity for success. And because of that, we get this. So, and, and here's what we need to understand. I, and, or at least what I think. I think Absalom was more concerned about his pride than his productivity. You ever met people like that? Brian can probably relate with me and, and maybe any other sports guys, but but a lot of players, they'll make sure they look good rather than play good. I don't know if you guys watch enough of it on TV. You might be able to see it on TV as well. It's not as frustrating when it's on TV because when they're on your team and they're worried about looking good more than playing good, oh, it makes you want to wring their necks. And I've, I've had some boys in coaching and boys that I've played with that are, that are very similar to this. And I, yeah, but I, I can snag it with one hand coaching it and look good. I don't care if it looks good. I care that you catch the ball and get the job done. Right? This is Absalom. Absalom is so worried about how he looks, his pride, that he's not worried about the actual productivity that's going to take place. And it says this, still going on in verse 9. His head got caught in the oak tree, or terebinth tree is how some of you translations have it, right? So he's left hanging there between, I love how scripture paints this. He's left hanging there between heaven and earth. Now, I understand the word-for-word translation says he was caught by his head. Okay, so maybe his big old dome got stuck between a limb or whatever. But for me, I kind of picture another thing we know about Absalom. What do we know? He got some long hair, man. Much long hair. Remember, it says once a year he would cut his hair and weigh it. I don't know how much hair you got to have to cut to weigh. I mean, I cut mine every week. But, you know, it's like a pile this big by the time I rake it up. and ain't much to weigh. But this guy says he would cut his hair because he had so much that, that, that he weighed it. That's a vanity thing, man. That's an arrogance thing. That's a pride thing. And I believe, even though it says head, I believe it's his hair that gets stuck up in this tree. And he's stuck there just hanging. And scripture even even paints us a picture. Now, maybe I'm interpreting this part a little wrong. But here's what I see when I read this next part. He's caught there hanging between heaven and earth. Here's, here's, here's what my brain goes to. Heaven don't want him. Earth don't want him. And hell's ready to gallop him up. Right? Could it not be exactly maybe a picture that we're starting to get right here on, on, on what's going, right? Picture this thing, man. He was so worried about his clothes, his appearance. We said it Wednesday night. What did we say? Clothes versus character. We're in the book of James. We're, we're talking about clothes versus character. He's so worried about his, his appearance that nothing else matters. And guys, I'm going to tell you right now, believer or unbeliever, when we get so caught up on our appearances, nothing else really does matter, and it'll lead straight to our destruction. 
And, and that's where he's at. His glory. Remember, he talked about his hair being his glory when he waited. His glory has now become his curse. I mean, this is his curse. And then there's this soldier who like casually mentions this. You know, and I don't know how much time exactly is going by, but you just got this guy. He, he comes by and says, hey, man, I just saw Aslan hanging in a tree. What is he? He talking about somebody hanging in a tree. Right? But, you know, you're like, well, what, what, what does this guy mean? Joab's quick. No, Joab said, well, did you kill him? And, and talk about loyalty again, man. No, I didn't kill him. Yeah, but if you would have killed him, we need to understand this. Joab said, I would have given you money. I would have given you a promotion. I would, I would have given you 10 shekels of silver and my belt. Now, now you, you check this thing out and you, and you would understand, like, this, this is big. Big stuff. The military belt was the chief ornament of a soldier. It was highly prized and, and all nations matter where you're from. It was, it was also like a rich present from a chieftain to another. Like this would have been a big, big deal. So not only is he offering money, power, authority, promotion. As response. It didn't matter how much you had offered me. I wasn't going to go against my king. Do you have that kind of loyalty? I love that this part is in this story because I'm be honest, like right now with all these chapters going on, there's not a lot of loyalty. I mean, you got a dad sleeping with his, his you know, his, his dad. I mean, you got a son sleeping with his, his dad's concubines. You got you got murder. You got I mean, you got some ugly stuff going on in, in, in these four or five chapters. But yeah, we just get little hints of still some some goodness in there. This guy says, I, I'm loyal today. There's no way I would have done this. Well, Joab shows his loyalty instantly. It says, verse 14. He took three spears. I guess one wasn't enough. I don't know. He took three spears in his hand and thrust them through Absalom's heart. Now, in case you're wondering when we get to the next part, heart in scripture, heart in Hebrew does not mean the organ. It means the center of the body. I only point that out because everybody's like, hold on. How these 10 people about to come do the same thing? And him still, he'd still be alive because he's been stabbed in the center of his body. All right. Not, not the actual organ. Two, two different words. All right. That's why sometimes we got to break, break stuff down in the original, make sure we get it right. But Joab doesn't hesitate. And, and he, here, here it is. You can have good motives and be wrong. I honestly believe Joab had good intentions. He's worried about David's best interest. He's worried about the nation's best interest. Right? He's, he's worried about all this. Plus, he might still be mad about his fields that got caught on fire. I don't know from a couple chapters ago, right? So maybe it is a little bit of revenge, right? So maybe we could say this. Either way, whether he had good intentions or not, emotions just, uh, emotions, Lead us against authority. Is that not true? You think about that? And I'm talking about all levels. We get so caught up in emotions that we go against authority in the world. We get so caught up in emotions that we go against God's authority. We get so caught up in emotions in our house that, that kids rebel against parents. We get so caught up in emotions that, that husbands and wives rebel against one another. Emotions lead us to rebellion. They lead us against authority. And that's kind of what, what goes on for Joab here. He lets his emotions get in. Are they realistic? Do, do I like what he did? Do I think what he did is true? Yeah, but I'm not God. Okay? And, I, and I'm also man enough to admit I'm not God. But but this guy, he wants to give Absalom exactly what he deserved. I mean, you've got a murderer, a traitor, a rapist. You, you've got the king's right-hand man that knows the king's secrets, by the way. Don't, don't miss that. And he also knows, you know what? David's done a poor job at dealing with his children this entire time. I'm not even going to give him the opportunity to screw this one up. I'm going to take care of it. But nobody gave Joab that right. Right? One man's mistakes not allow us to make more mistakes. Do you understand that? I think sometimes we think, well, so-and-so did. No. 
That's one thing I'll never forget my parents over and over. They'd ask why, and I'd come up with a list of good people that did bad stuff, thinking that was going to help me, right? I don't care about them. They're not my kids. Well, they were still doing it, whether you care about them or not. One man's mistakes do not allow us to make mistakes. God's looking at us as Abba Father, and he's saying, I don't care what the other knuckleheads are doing. I care what you're doing, right? Now, we could say he was, you could word it this way. We could say that he was correct, but he wasn't right. That's kind of a play on words then, right? He is correct. It would have been best for David for this guy to be gone. It definitely is best for the nation for this guy to be gone, right? But he, but he's still not right in disobeying the king. We, we still have all the things that we need to remember, mostly from, from 1 Samuel into the beginning of 2 Samuel, where, where God dealt with King Saul. And if God can deal with those in authority, then we don't need to disobey necessarily those of authority. Saying, God, you know what? You're not big enough to handle it. I got to handle it my own. That's not what God's looking for. God's not looking for, he's not looking for you to handle his stuff. He's got a job to handle. You got a job to handle, right? Then verse 15, you still got this, this picture. So I don't know how graphic or bad this is for you guys, but I, I, it's just a picture. This guy is hanging from a tree by his hair. Let me just kick and squirming. He wanted to ride that big old horse so his head was up in the air where it shouldn't have been, right? Whatever. He's kicking and squirming. Joab's come up. He stuck him with three spears. Then he looks at 10 of his men. He says, you know what? You guys stick them too. Now you got two things happening here. One, scripture I think is painting a little picture. This guy just slept with 10 concubines. What's the chances of 10 people that's going to come, right? I don't know. Guy's big on numbers. I think he matches that kind of stuff up. So maybe that. But the other thing that's happening here is now you got 11 people that have driven swords through this guy's body. Who's guilty of Who gave the final blow? Who's the one that's got to stand before the king and be held responsible? In all honesty, there's no way to say for sure, right? So now you've got 11 people instead of just one guy. Joab's a smart idiot, right? He is. He is, really. So you got this going on. Uh, verse 17. Scoot down to verse 17. They took Absalom, they cast him into a large pit in the woods and covered stones over him. They're going to make sure this guy does not get a memorial set up for him. They're going to make sure his acts of rebellion are, are not there for a monument for future rebels to look at. They're eliminating this guy's name from history right now. And they're making sure to cover up all their tracks with this. But then we get like this little pause right after right after 17. Well, maybe you need to say it this way. I put this on, on the Internet last night. When you put yourself in a place Absalom was, destruction will be your destiny. When you put yourself where Absalom is, pride, arrogance, rebellion, uh, a lack of submission to authority. I mean, in all honesty, this guy could have been king legally and rightly. But but he wanted it too soon. And, and, he, and he wanted it his way rather than, than the right way. So, so when you do all that, destruction is your destiny. You can just expect it. It ought not surprise you when it comes. Verse 17 finishes this. All Israel fled, everyone to his tent. What's it saying? This is a full retreat. David's men have completely ruled the day. The rebellion is over. And then this writer just wants to remind us once more of, of this guy's this guy's thing. Verse 18, it says, it talks about Absalom's pillar. Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up a pillar for himself. This self-centered, self-promoting man like Absalom. You know, good guys get a statue after they die set up by somebody else. Prideful people, they got to build their own statues before they die. Think about it. Am I right? How about us? Have we tried to set up things for ourselves in a prideful way while we're still here because we are afraid nobody else will set them up for us when we're gone? It's a question to think about. 
Right? It's a a question we got to answer. Then you get to this other scene. I love this one just as much. 19 through 27 is where we're at. 19 through 27. Two runners are sent to tell David this stuff. You, you get the very first guy. He's excited to go tell. He's like, let, let me go tell David. Let me go. I mean, he's excited, guys, and he should be. He's got, he's got, he's got passion for this thing, right? And Joab looks at him and says, it's not your message to deliver. And you could pause right there for a whole nother sermon, guys. On understanding, you got to deliver your message and somebody else got to deliver their message. Right? But so that's kind of where we're at. Except for this guy, verse 23, it says that, that he outran the guy who was supposed to be delivering the message. Now, I don't know exactly where Joel's mom was. I think he's kind of thinking, man, that Cushite, by the way, that's not the guy's name. That's where he's from. Okay. That, that Cushite, he done gone. There ain't no way you're going to catch him. So sure, if you want to run, go ahead and run. But when you're running with the right zeal, <laughs> you can outrun somebody, right? And you got to love passion. So he runs faster. He passes the Cushite. David's men, look they're looking over the wall or, you know, whatever they're set up, their fortress. And they say, you know, this guy that you know, uh, Ahamaz, is, is coming. And David says, oh, that's a good man. He's bringing good news. He's not wrong. What's the news he brings? No, they don't talk about no killing yet. David, we won. Victory is ours, David. This is some good stuff. Man, you, you get to go back to your, to your place of authority again. He delivers half a message. And it stops right there. And then we get to verse 29, which is, well, 28 through, through 32 kind of reiterates some things. Over and over throughout this whole section, David keeps asking what? Every time they come back with, how's Absalom? Is my son safe? How is this guy? What, what, what's he doing right now? Now, this gets David in a little bit of trouble, to be honest. If you, when you get to 19, we'll see this next week. Because his men are kind of upset that his only concern is for his traitorous son rather than the casualty of men. Chapter 19, one of his men is actually going to tell him, we could have all died, and as long as your traitorous son lived, you would have been okay. Now, I think, I hope, at least that's, that's a little bit of a wake-up call for, for David. But, but that, that's where his men are out right here. But we have to understand this, guys. This is an example of the love of a parent and a child. And God God calls himself Abba for us, so we get the idea of how much he loves us. Right? So, so, so this is just part of where it's at. And, and the first guy says this. I, I did see a great disturbance, but I don't know what it was about. So, so he's kind of lying, because he left after the Kushite, by the way. So he knows exactly what the disturbance was about. He knows exactly what's going on. And you could really say this. He was a great deliverer of a message, but he didn't know his message. How many people do we know to speak but don't know their message? Hmm, right? A message can be delivered beautifully, but the messenger's first responsibility is to get the message correct. You and I, if we deliver a beautiful message but it's not correct, we're not being good ambassadors for God's kingdom. Right? The Cushite, though, he comes in. I guess that's the problem when you've got a friend trying to deliver news. They want to, they want to sugarcoat it and make it good. Right? Because this Cushite comes in, he says, hey, how's my son? Verse 32, this Cushite don't, don't sugarcoat it none. May the enemies of the Lord my king who rise against you be just like that young man. What's he saying? He dead and I hope everybody else who rise against you dead. Right? I mean, there ain't no, there's no, hey, you need to sit down. I need to tell you about this. He was hanging from a tree and we, no, <laughs> yeah, there's none of that. 
It, it just shouts it out. He's gone. Now, we got to pause right here, man, because I think a, a little bit of a, a spiritual lesson for us today might be this. This first guy, he ran with all his might. He comes in first because of his zeal. But when he arrives, he doesn't deliver the full message. And I wonder sometimes if we run with all our might and we got a lot of zeal, but we don't deliver the full message. Look at look at what he delivers. If you break this thing down into words, he delivered the message of victory, but he didn't deliver the message of judgment. Right. Look, look at what's happening. This is the picture he's got. He tells David, your armies have won the battle, but he doesn't tell him the price that had to be paid. OK, right. We connect to this. He refused to deliver the whole thing. And I think this is happening in the churches today and in God's people today. A failure to deliver the full message to the world that's looking. We preach about victory. We proclaim the message of salvation and victory. But we never explain the full price that has to be paid for victory and salvation. Correct? We present a challenge. Oh, you got to, you know, it was one of the cool things. She was she was so excited to tell us she was safe. Then we sat down and started labeling some stuff and understanding stuff. It was like, huh? I got to do what? Like, what's that mean? But but then you can shoot. Well, you also means you get to hold me accountable now, baby, because we like she says, so you're my brother and my dad. A whole nother conversation. But anyway, but we got we got to make sure we, we understand everything. Right. And, and that's where we're at. So we proclaim the message of victory, but we fail to explain the price that goes with that. We, we, we promote the challenge of living the right way. But we forget to tell people about the power that lives inside of them. I'm proud to say too many people this week have asked me, how are you going to be able to preach and then leave right at 12 and get there and preach a a funeral for a cousin that you you were kind of close with everything that you saw all the time? I'm not going to. Jesus is going to. I couldn't do it. I I got to totally eliminate myself and just be a vessel that that I'm going to let his power reign through. And that's it. It's not about me. It can't be about me. I would fail. I would fail you daily if I wasn't a vessel that's being used by the Holy Spirit. And we forget that, that, that preaching all the time, right? We're large in number and we claim Christ and we talk about all these baptisms and how great all that stuff is. But do we really tell people how they're supposed to live a victorious life? Do we really explain to them how they're really supposed to serve? Do we really look at the first disciples and the powerful influence they had, the boldness of their witness and the purification of their living? And we live that out ourselves. No, I don't think we do all the time. And I think that's probably the problem. Why? Because like this first guy who runs, and I don't like to say his name, we only deliver part of the message. Salvation's available, but there's more to the message than that. We, 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 and the bad part is now we want to try to overcorrect this sometimes with stuff. Oh, it's, it's not just that for, for good. No, it's all good news. I'm not going to let somebody's mistakes change what good news means. Good news, it starts right here in Genesis where God made us, and it ends right here where he's coming back for us in victory. All right, it's all good news. You know, you're not going to destroy a wording of something because man has messed it up. I'm going to make sure God's good news gets up, right? What? Yes, salvation is good, but so is living like a saved person, right? So is following God. So is being in a deep relationship with him. So, so, so is loving him and following his commands and doing what he wants. And so is gathering more people and loving them so much that they got to ask what the world is different about this group of guys, right? The truth is this. It's one thing to agree that we're sinners. It's a whole other thing to be willing to give up our sin, Right? It's one thing to acknowledge we're going in the wrong direction. It's a whole other thing to stop, turn around, and make ourselves go in the way of Christ. There's there's a young boy probably during COVID nineteen, I'm sure, and his mother wakes him up one morning. Finally, he says, "Baby, it's past noon. You got to get up." He crawls out of bed, you know, like these little lazy teenagers do. <laughs> Gets out there and says, "Aren't you?" His mama tells him, "Aren't you ashamed of staying in the bed past noon?" The boy answers, "Yeah, mom, I'm, I'm kind of ashamed." 
She said, then why don't you get up? He said, I'd rather be ashamed than get up. It's a good honest answer, right? Is that not some of us? I think many people are ashamed of their sins. They're ashamed of what they are. They're ashamed of what they've done. But they'd rather stay ashamed than give some of those things up. Right? They'd rather stay ashamed than try to learn and grow more. It takes more than shame to be saved. It takes repentance. It takes a change. It takes a turn of life. It, it takes more than just saying we want to be saved. It takes more than get wet. It means that we have to be willing to turn from our foolish ways and start following his ways. Start representing his kingdom the right way. And it also is a fool to think that there, there's, there's also no salvation without repentance. Well, there's no salvation without power either. So, something we forget to add sometimes is that when we turn to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit takes residence up in us. We've now got power to do the things that, that we don't understand. Something we're going to hit on Wednesday, talking about loving your neighbor. And, and you want why? What about loving your, your enemy neighbor that you don't like? You can't do it if the Holy Spirit's not inside of you. You can't. It's impossible. I'd like to punch somebody without the Holy Spirit, but loving them, right? That's a whole other kind of ball game. Here, here's what it means when we, we get the Holy Spirit. We no longer have to face life alone. God's always constantly with us. We no longer have to solve our problems alone. We no longer have to meet temptation alone. We no longer have to relate to the, to the world alone. We no longer have to face death alone. There's, there's no loneliness, man. God took on loneliness so that we don't have to be alone. It's the promise of God's Holy Spirit. And I think too many Christians are living lives of defeat because they don't realize that the Holy Spirit came to live with them. To give them the ability to handle that just seems crazy. And the tragedy of the church today, and I'm talking about the church as the people of Christ, is that we only proclaim partial message. And the tragedy of that is this. The proclamation of salvation without repentance is a tragedy because it's a mockery to the cross. It's a mockery to what Jesus really came to do, right? And the fact of preaching salvation without the Holy Spirit is the greatest tragedy because it strips the gospel of its power. It does. And if that's what you and I are doing, it would have been better for us not to run to deliver a message at all. Who would have ever thought we could get good spiritual Joab, right? It's not your message to give. You can't deliver it right. It's not yours to give. Let's get this last verse. Last verse. David's great morning. Verse 33. Look at the pain that's in this verse too, by the way. The king was deeply moved. That, that translation actually means like he shook. You ever seen somebody after they've gotten like really bad news? And they, 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 like the whole body is just like they're so hurt or so the emotions are just, just saying that, that literally means shaking. Some of your translations may say shaking. I don't know. The king was deeply moved and went up to the gate chamber and wept. As he walked, he cried, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. If only I had died instead of you, Absalom, my son, my son. You may be able to figure out the answer by the question. You know how many times in these, what are we at, six chapters? Six chapters David's called Absalom his son? None until just now. I didn't believe it. I had to go back and look. None. None until just now. Now, now to you, that might not mean none, but to me, I'm thinking all scripture, I believe Timothy, all scripture is written to a point like there's a purpose for it. So I'm like, all right, why, why is this writer recording at this moment that he's calling him my son five times? Why is he saying his name three times? Why is he going to do it again in 19? Why is he at this moment right here where he's, he's weeping this way and he's so hurt this way? And, and here's what it is. I think the writer is saying this. It's too late. You finally acknowledged what you were supposed to, but it's too late. Maybe the question then is just for us and to make sure it's not too late. 
get relationships restored there the way it's supposed to be. Do what you're supposed to do with people you're supposed to do them with before it's too late. Because now that he's calling in my son, he's dead. He's gone. That doesn't do any good, right? Then he says this line, if I had only died in your place. Man, I, I love when I, when I read this because remember David is an illustration of Christ, right? Somewhat. David could not die in his son's place, but Christ could die in ours. What David could not do, Jesus can do. So in the cry of David, you actually hear God crying out for his lost children who he has a desire to restore and forgive, right? And when you read a biblical story, you're supposed to be able to apply it to you personally. So, so let's look at it. Sure, it shows the consequences of sin. Sure, it shows men that you got to be proactive in your families. But maybe part of it is this. We, and we anybody remember the title of the series? We don't get big into titles. If it wasn't for Beth and ladies doing Facebook, I don't think we would do titles at all, to be honest. Anybody remember the title to this? None of you get on our website and check out stuff and know the fine job that these ladies are doing. Search for a... What we started with is search for a king in 1 Samuel. And now Crystal wants to auto-correct me. She forgot her place of authority. We'll talk about it in the truck. right? <laughs> and now it's the rise of a king. So you got search for a king, rise of a king. Maybe the whole point of this, or a big point of this, is to show us that David's not the king who's supposed to be searched for. And he's not even the king who's supposed to be. Now I know he is physically for Israel at this point. But I'm talking about for us on a spiritual lesson. Like our, our, our confidence isn't to be put up in a man king. It's to be put up in father, Yahweh. His son, his king, right? And maybe like Absalom, all of us have rebelled against God so much that we've tried to take over the kingdom for ourselves and do it our way because of pride and arrogance. Maybe we've even publicly humiliated him on the rooftops of our lives. And God is making sure and wanting us to understand that while David wanted to die in Absalom's place and he's couldn't, Jesus can. And maybe why Absalom is hanging in this tree with a spear, 13 spears to be exact in him, we get a glimpse of Christ hanging on his tree. You know, it calls the cross a tree. Hanging on a tree with a spear in his side for you and I. But maybe the, the point right now is just for us to understand that Jesus is the true and better David. He's the real king and he deserves to be risen to that authority of king. He's not just a savior and a redeemer. He, he's the king. He's the Lord. He's Yahweh. He's God. And, and, and David, David's got a lot of consequences for his sin. But we also get to see through this whole thing, like Psalm 23 tells us, surely goodness and mercy will flow, uh, follow me all the days of my life. That verse ain't stopped being true for David. The Messiah is going to come out of the line of David. Like God's still got a plan that he's working on and God's plan is still good. Could David have embraced it sooner and started the healing process? Yeah, he sure could have. Maybe that's for you today. Maybe today you can start your healing process a lot sooner than David did so you don't have to let your snowball effect get longer. Maybe you need to repent from your sin, ask forgiveness, seek healing, find out the truth, break the cycle and start living the right way and following the kingdom of God. Because when God confronts us in this story of David, to deliver the good news that things didn't have to be this way. They don't have to be this way. We don't have to continue to kill one another. We can stop it. Look, look at a theme in David's life, by the way. I, I jotted this down. This is just kind of an extra thing. Really, everything from this chapter is over. But but I, I'd written this down this week. I first wrote down that David seems to love his enemies more than anybody else in Scripture. Think about it. Now, sometimes his motives are right. Sometimes his motives are wrong. But man, he's always Saul. 
How many times could he have killed him and did? His own son, how many times could he have killed him again? Right? Constantly he's over this thing. So, so three things the gospel gives us that we see in David's life. Hope. This, David's dysfunctional family is not the ultimate. God's got a greater. So there's hope. Healing. The, the ability to, to, to work for it, to, to, to break that cycle, we get healing. And compassion, the ability to love and forgive others. And, and maybe as we, we end this chapter, before we jump into 19 and, and things begin to, to, to shift a little bit for him, we need to ask ourselves, do we have these things? Are we living out these things? Are we understanding these things? Are we following through on these things? Or maybe we just need to ask ourselves if we've been doing a poor job at only delivering half a message. I don't know which part, but one thing I love about trying to do a whole chapter every time is there's something for everybody in every chapter. You ever notice that? I don't know if you guys actually converse after church. You should do that. It's good to be with your family and, and talk scripture stuff. I, I, I love throughout the week as I, as I get to talk to people and like everybody got something different out of the chapter. Some of y'all be getting something and I'm like, I didn't even get like, what, what are you talking about? Like, why, where did you get that? Like, why'd you like that part? That was supposed to be like the little part. The big part was, you know, because God speaks to what we need in the time period we need it. That's why, that's why you can't just say, well, I read the Bible once. It's over. No, you read that thing over and over. And I assure you, every time you read it, you go get something different out of a different area. That's how God works. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. God, we thank you for this morning, Lord. Lord, I pray right now, Lord God, that you use your spirit to apply whatever section of this chapter, Lord God, hits us at home. God, speak volumes into our life, Lord God. God, help us to run with more zeal if we need to, but help us to get the message correct. God, help us to be obedient to those that you, you, you want us to be obedient to, Lord God, the right way. God, help us to open our heart, our minds, and our eyes, Lord God, to see that it doesn't have to be this way. That you are the greater king, Lord God. God, I'm thankful for your, your slowness to punish us sometimes. I'm thankful for your mercy and your grace, Lord God, and how it allows us to recover from those faults in our lives. God, I pray right now, Lord God, that you open the hearts of every single one of us in this room, Lord God, to see what it is in this story that you want us to get. Where it is that we can grow to be better kingdom ambassadors for you. Where it is that we need to change some things, Lord God. Where it is that we need to claim not only salvation, but also repentance and power of your Holy Spirit reigning inside of us. Give us that power, Lord God, to change the world outside. In your great name we pray. Amen.